My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, and we are reading Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is on page 1597 in the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, page 1597. Hear these words from Luke. One day, as Jesus was standing, By the lake of Genesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. He said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, I will make you fishers of men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is also the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, when when you're a pastor and you you decide to preach from the lectionary for, for a season, then the, the moment that you check what the readings are for that week, that's a big moment because, because you've already committed. Those four scripture readings, there's a Old Testament, a Psalm, a Gospel, and an Epistle. You've got to preach from one of those four. And although I, I firmly believe that all of scripture is God-breathed and useful for training and teaching in righteousness, any pastor that tries to tell you that it's just as easy to preach from any portion of the Bible, they're lying to you. Some are easier than others. Sometimes you check those lessonary passages and you think to yourself, oh, this is going to be a tough week. Just Nothing immediately jumps out at you. The passages are kind of weird or obscure, and you realize that you're just going to have to spend a bit more time in the lectionaries that week if you want anything of any significance to say on Sunday. Now, uh, in my experience, God is often faithful, is faithful, and he will often give you a word uh, either way. That's where the God-breathed part comes in after all, but it can be scary when it initially feels like the lectionary is not giving you just a whole lot of meat to work with. This week, this week is the exact opposite of that kind of situation. This week, the lectionary has given us a straight-up embarrassment of riches, some of the most profound and theologically rich and beautiful stories in the Old and New Testament. Uh, the, the story of Isaiah receiving his call in the royal throne room itself, the story of Peter being commissioned despite his sin as a fisher of men. These stories, they touch on everything. The nature of God, how we relate to God, 
Uh, there's just so much here. And with this abundance of riches comes a, a, a different kind of challenge, actually. A lot of times, a lot of times I think of my job as the preacher as to sort of to distill or to focus the scripture passage with the help of the Holy Spirit into, into kind of one, one statement, a single lesson or promise or piece of encouragement that y'all can take with you throughout the week, an aha moment. Preachers call this the sermon's big idea, and ideally you could boil it down to like 12 words or something. But, but around Wednesday afternoon this week, I decided that that was just going to be impossible this time around. Um, these stories, they're, they're too big and too expansive, and, and there's too much here. Maybe a better preacher could boil it down to 12 words, but, but I, I cannot. So for this sermon, I want you to think of the sermon and is my role as the preacher a little differently than maybe you normally would. Rather than imagining that I'm kind of like a teacher with a straightforward lesson that I'm going to just try to simply communicate to you, I want you to think of me as more like a tour guide. We're going to kind of wander through the world of these stories together as if we were on a safari, ooing and aahing at the wild and amazing and terrifying things that we are going to see. And, you know, I, I, I spent several hours this past week doing just that. And so, you know, I'm going to help us get our bearings, make sure that we are headed in the right direction. I'm going to point out what I think are the really important landmarks that I wouldn't want you to miss. But my goal is not necessarily to explain to you the settled meaning of these stories. I want to help you experience them for yourself. To go through the adventure of these texts together as a group, we're going to have an opportunity to see them intersect with our own lives and our own experiences with God. Uh, there might be a little bit more heavy lifting to do on your end this week, but I know that this group in particular is up for it. And so uh, this will be our little experiment. Y'all on board? Sound good? All right. That being said, before we set off, I do have some major signposts for our journey that I think uh, will help us orient ourselves as we wander through these uh, stories of just indescribable depth. You could think of them as the cardinal directions, except that there are only three of them. There aren't four. So if that's not helpful, then you know, just forget about it. They are glory, judgment, and hope. Both of these stories, I think, deal with those weighty topics of glory, judgment, and hope. They give us insight into how God relates to these things and how our own lives are caught up in them as well. All right, let's get going. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. The year that Uzziah died, that refers to a time in Israel's history where the threat of, of invasion and annihilation hung over the people every day. The foreign nation of Assyria was getting more and more powerful, and they were taking over more and more territory. They were inching closer and closer to Israel's own walls, and it felt like it was only a matter of time before they came to Jerusalem itself. And it was during this time that the prophet Isaiah, seemingly instantaneously, is transported via a vision from the Israelite countryside into the very throne room of heaven. And when he is transported there, he is immediately reminded that ultimate reality it's not defined by the various warring kings and nations and monarchs or presidents that play around down here on earth like a couple of snot-nosed kids in a sandbox, but rather it's defined by Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, who sits high and lofty above it all and whose robe, no, just the edge, the hem of his robe is glorious enough to fill the entire temple. Yahweh, the Lord, is surrounded by seraphim, and that's, that's just a transliteration of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word means the fiery ones, the burning ones. These fiery ones are surrounding the Lord on all sides, and they have six wings. With two wings, they're covering their face. With two wings, they're covering their feet. And with two wings, they're, you know, they're staying aloft. 
Here's a moment where it really feels like we're on a safari, right? Like kind of like a, what in the world is that thing sort of moment. Interestingly, the other cultures, cultures like Assyria, uh, they sometimes depicted their gods, lowercase g, as a being surrounded by, by flaming attendants. But in this case, those other gods that would appear in Assyrian art or poetry or something, the wings of the, famous, of the flaming beings always covered the god, as if to enclose the god and to protect the god. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, he, he needs no such protection. The seraphim, the fiery ones, they're the ones that need to be protected. They are the ones that cannot bear the glory of God directly and so must cover their face and their feet. Verse 3, each of these fiery ones is calling out one to the other. And they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We all recognize these lines, right? These are very familiar because we sing this as well in a variety of different settings and hymns. We sing, holy, holy, holy. I, I, I love that hymn. I, did we sing that hymn last week? Yeah. Okay. I, was, I thought it sounded familiar. Um, it's a great hymn. I love it. Normally, I think of it as a very sort of, uh, kind of a pensive and peaceful sort of hymn that like, it should ideally it'd be sung with a full choir in kind of a dark chapel, uh, like, Holy, holy, holy. You can, you can hear that, right? That's how I think of it. The original rendition, quite in contrast, sung by the fiery ones, it sounds like it was closer to like a rock concert or something because verse four tells us that the pivots of the threshold, the, the weight-bearing spots in the temple shook at the sound of the seraphim. Their singing was so loud and so powerful that the throne room itself is shaking and rattling. Like you can feel the, the beat of the drum if you're at like a, a, you know, a Metallica concert or something. And so you, I want you to imagine the scene in your head for a minute. Close your eyes if you need to. The heavenly throne room, the fiery ones are encircling a high and lofty throne. The hem of God's glory is filling the temple. The stone walls are shaking and vibrating with the sound of these strange beings' song. And that's what it was like for Isaiah to experience the glory of God. It's a picture of God as as holy other, as existing in a state of perfection and sacredness and holiness, a state that, that when it does intersect with the limited nature of human perception and the fractured state of our own world, it shakes the very foundations. It strains against the limits of our own reality. And I think, I think it's important for us 21st century Christians in particular to read stories like this, to remember what kind of God it is that we serve. In our age of, you know, sort of Christian-y self-help books, we've got like fish bumper stickers, flowery kind of devotionals. Sometimes we can slip pretty easily into kind of a almost saccharinely sweet, you've got a friend in me style of Christianity where, where God exists mainly in the form of like an invisible friend or a pal who we can pull out of a drawer like an old diary, when and if we need to process something or to ask for help. And, and don't, don't get me wrong, please don't hear what I'm not saying. A, a close and intimate relationship with God is a treasure and a miracle. But sometimes our perspective needs to be balanced out by a vision of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, who sits high and lifted up, looking down on the powers and the authorities of this world like they were bugs, and whose glory fills the entire temple. So Isaiah finds himself in this royal throne room, and he can immediately tell that the glory of his surroundings is too much for his merely mortal body that the holiness of God is in danger of burning up him and his sin alike. Woe is me, he says, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Amazingly, though, 
one of the seraphim, one of the fiery ones, takes a burning coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips and declares that this has taken away his sins and that his iniquities are forgiven. Contact with the divine realm by the grace of God results not in Isaiah's destruction, but with his redemption. If this were like a senior commencement at a seminary or something or a missionary revival, we would, we would read verse 8, the next verse, and then we would call it a day. Verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. We'd stop there, and the lesson, the takeaway here would be something like, you are, you are also like Isaiah. The Lord is calling you to do his work, and what will your answer be? And that's, that's, that's a great sermon. That's a well and good sermon. I've preached that sermon before myself. And if you sense the Lord is calling you, the best answer is, of course, here I am, send me. But today, we're, we're reading the whole story today. Uh, so maybe, unfortunately, we, we've got to keep going past verse 8. And God said, go tell this people, tell Israel, keep hearing, but don't understand. Keep seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of the people hard. Make their ears full. Close their eyes, lest they hear and understand and turn to be healed. You can understand why we so often stop this story at verse 8, can't you? Isaiah is given such a a terrible set of instructions. He's given a, a terrible goal, it seems. The, the purpose of his message is explicitly not to obtain repentance. He's been sent to harden the hearts of the people. His message is designed, is supposed to close ears and to smear over their eyes. Now, this, this is a moment where I am going to step in as your tour guide. Um, just because I, I do think that there is danger in misunderstanding what's going on here. When we hear that Isaiah was given his message in order that the people might not hear, that they would not understand, they would not turn to repentance. What kind of message do you imagine that that is? I think that when we hear that that's the goal, we envision that Isaiah is sent with some kind of sneaky message, like a deceptive or a misleading message that he's going to trick the people. He's going to lead them astray and therefore accomplish this result, right? How else would he know that it was a result in hard hearts and closed ears? But this is an easy thing to check, right? We, can, we know what the content of Isaiah's message was. It's preserved in the rest of the book of Isaiah. And if you read the rest of the book of Isaiah, here's what you'll realize. Isaiah did not utter one misleading word. Isaiah didn't make one false statement. Through the first 49 chapters of the book of Isaiah, the prophet is describing the sin of the people. He's condemning it. He's condemning the rot that's lying at the heart of the society that Israel had built, how they had built a culture where people had thrown out any and all measurement of, of chastity and restraint in favor of just utter hedonistic indulgence. And they had built a culture where the powerful and the wealthy exploited and ignored the poor and the powerless. And Isaiah warns that God is not going to allow such a society to stand forever. And so here's the important part. It was precisely this true and this accurate description of Israel, of the spiritual state of Israel, that had the results that God describes in verses 9 through 11. Israel was confronted with the truth, and it was the truth that made their hearts grow fat, that closed their ears, and that smeared over their eyes. Now here is definitely, I think, a word for us today. How do people, or to put a finer point on it, how do you and how do, how do you and I, how do we react when we are confronted 
with a brutally unflattering but true description of ourselves or of the groups that we associate with? Are we able to to see clearly and confront our shortcomings and, and deal with them, no matter how humbling or difficult such a process might be? Rarely. Rarely, in my experience. Speaking personally. Oftentimes, this kind of confrontation causes our hearts to harden, our ears to close, our eyes to go dim. Israel is so far gone here that being told the truth about themselves only drives them further and further away. And so that's how we end up with Isaiah asking in verse 11, how long, how long, O Lord? And God responds with the devastating verdict of exile. Until cities lie ruined without inhabitants, until the houses are empty, until the Lord has sent everybody far away. Do you remember our, our three signposts? Our orienting themes for this morning? Our guiding lights, glory, judgment, and hope and hope. The last verse in Isaiah 6 is famously mysterious, and it's, it's difficult to understand. It says, the holy seed is its stump. Once God's judgment of Israel has run its course, like a, like a forest of trees that's been burned down to the stumps and then burned yet again, it's precisely from this heap of ashes that a hope for the future emerges. God's judgment never closes off the possibility of redemption. It might be thorough, and it is real, but it never closes off the possibility of redemption. That stump, that which is left after exile, that survives the flames, that is the holy seed that will continue God's long-suffering plan for the redemption of the world. So then 500 years go by. 500 years. Imagine like a, you know, the time loop in a movie. Zoom. And we get to the story from Luke 5. Scholars have long observed the similarities between this scene beside the lake Gennesaret, a pronunciation that I definitely had to Google and practice several times. Similarities between this scene and the vision that Isaiah saw during the year that King Uzziah died. In both, there's a revealing of God's glory. In both, the key witness is driven to his knees as a result. And in both, that witness ends up being commissioned by God to do his work. But these core similarities are expressed in radically different ways that you immediately would pick up on as soon as you read these stories. Firstly is the setting, right? As we saw earlier, there might not be any more powerful or elevated or wild description of God's glory anywhere else in the Bible than what we get in Isaiah 6. A throne, high and lifted up, fiery ones covering their faces, the temple shaking with their worship. This is God as other, as, as, as overwhelmingly holy. And this story from Luke 5 God is a pedestrian being shoved around by the crowd. He receives one elbow in his side too many, so he decides to to sit down, the text tells us, in a stinking fishing boat in order to address the crowd. Surroundings don't get a whole lot more humbler than that. And I think here we're reminded of the miracle that is the incarnation, that is that the God of the heavenly throne room is also the God that taught from the stinking fishing boat. That's the same God. It's an incredible truth that we confess as Christians. And it's important that we always remember this, that God exists as both of these, in both forms. He is both the transcendent and holy Yahweh, for whom all of the authorities and machinations of earthly powers are nothing. And he is the humble Jesus that teaches behind the shore. By becoming human in the person of Jesus Christ, God condescended to us in such an incredible way that human beings could see him and touch him. 
that we can have a relationship with him that's similar to having a best friend and a close confidant that is beside us in any and all circumstances. And that doesn't make God any less glorious, but it is an extreme illustration of God's love for us that he would go to such lengths to know us and to save us. The God of glory is revealed in both of these stories, both the throne room and the fishing boat. So, After Simon Peter, he sort of dutifully and respectfully accommodates what is really kind of a ridiculous question that Jesus asks of them. Uh, He responds, you know, yeah, sure, we professional fishermen, you know, we've been fishing all night long and and haven't caught anything. And these nets that we're cleaning, they're actually designed to be used at night so the fish can't see them. But sure, we'll let down for something just because you asked. Peter humors him. And as soon as he does, does, the glory of God is revealed. The catch nearly sinks the boats, and Peter, like Isaiah, suddenly realizes that he's standing on holy ground. Go away from me, Lord. If you knew the kind of man that I was, if you knew my innermost thoughts, my sicknesses and my shortcomings, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What comes next in the story from Luke 5, though, I don't think can be described as judgment. The holy seed has sprouted. The tradition of Israel was preserved. And eventually came a man who is in the midst of living a perfect life and who will suffer, die, and rise again for the redemption of all things. The story has progressed, and now the plan unfolds in a new manner. And so Jesus says to Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on, you are going to fish for people. I am still partial to the classic King James here. As long as we understand that we're talking about both genders, men and women, do not be afraid, for now I'm making you a fisher of men. The Greek word for fish here is really interesting, as in I will make you fish for people. It's not the normal word for fish. It's, it's a much rarer word, and it literally means to capture alive. To capture alive. Let's think about that for a minute. There's a, there's a part of the great Thanksgiving liturgy that unfortunately we haven't featured in a while, and that's on me. It's part of the prayer of confession. It's called the invitation to the table. It says, Christ our Lord invites to this table all who earnestly repent of their sin and who desire to live in peace with one another. I'm sure those words sound familiar to you in one way or another. It's a beautiful line. It's actually not the original invitation. When John, in John Wesley's day, the founder of Methodism, when he began the Lord's Supper, he worded the, the invitation like this. Christ our Lord invites to, our, to this table all who desire to flee from the wrath to come. That was the original invitation to the table. A bit more intense, isn't it? And I'm not upset that we changed it. I'm really not. I'm glad we did, actually, because we, we can't assume that everyone in our congregations, especially visitors, we can't assume that everybody has a, a nuanced and biblical view of what the wrath of God means. If you just hear the phrase, the wrath of God, you'd think that it was referring to like an emotional state that God is in, that God is angry at you maybe even hates you. And fleeing his wrath is like running away from an angry monster or something. But that's not what the Bible means when it refers to the wrath of God. The Bible tends to use the wrath of God as a shorthand for that all-consuming glory of God that cannot and will not abide the never-ending existence of sin and injustice. The glory of God, the wrath of God that forgave Isaiah's sins and his iniquities, but did so with a burning coal to his lips. Through the grace of Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, Peter, James, and John had hope. They were were captured alive. They were redeemed and they were forgiven. 
and thus made capable of standing in the throne room in the presence of both Jesus and Yahweh, Lord of hosts. God had given them a way to flee from the wrath to come. And then, what's more, the story ends with them being commissioned as fishers of men to fish for people, to capture alive the rest of the men and the women whom God loves. By implication, that's what we are invited to do as well. That's our mission as the church as well. It's worked out really well that this is the first Sunday of the month, um, and so we're going to celebrate the great Thanksgiving, the Eucharist. We're going to go to the table together, to the bread and the wine. And so as we do, let's go with our safari experiences in mind. In light of all of the amazing and awesome and gloriously terrible things that we saw together the last 20 minutes, let's approach the table aware of the miracle that the Yahweh, Lord of hosts, whose glory breaks reality, also enfolds us in his loving arms and whose grace comes to us in something so simple and something seemingly mundane as grape juice and bread. Let's come to the table as those who are aware of our unworthiness, but that awareness only increases our thankfulness and our wonder at the experience of grace. We approach as those who desire to flee the wrath to come, who have been captured alive, and who will, once we leave this place, be fishers of men and of women. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.